Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Louise Hitchcock for a conversation about architecture on the Greek islands in the Bronze Age. And specifically, we're going to focus in the conversation on three islands in what would be modern day Greece, two of which will be very familiar to a lot of people, Crete and Santorini. Dr. Hitchcock is Professor of Archaeology, School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, based in Australia. She's the author of numerous publications, including co-authoring the book, Aegean Art and Architecture, which was published by Oxford University Press, and authoring the book, Theory for Classics, which was published by Routledge, and she joins us today from Australia. Welcome to the call, Louise. Good to be here. Okay, so to create some parameters for the conversation today, we're talking about um, some uh, different, uh, what would be in modern terms, Greek uh, islands um, in the Bronze Age. And we're talking about architecture uh, uh, of those islands, uh, of, uh, within those islands. Um, can you define uh, when the uh, Bronze Age uh, was and why scholars call it a Bronze Age? Um, the Bronze Age is believed to have started around 3000 BCE um, and ended around 1200. And it, when they, when the Bronze Age supposedly ends and the Iron Age begins, it's not because they stopped using bronze, but the term bronze refers to the highest level of technology that people had achieved at this time. And the Bronze Age was divided into uh, roughly three periods early, middle, and late. And this was also kind of based on uh, Darwinian modes of um, birth, maturity, and decline. And the early Bronze Age was really not so much a real Bronze Age, but it's what we might call an arsenical copper age in that it wasn't true tin bronze, but arsenic was added to the copper to make it a little harder and um, the true Bronze Age where tin is being mixed with copper really begins around 2000 BCE. That's interesting. Okay. So what uh, Greek islands were you most familiar with that you did research on in ex excavations? Um, not necessarily always excavations, but uh, I studied the uh, Bronze Age architecture of Crete primarily of the, the function of the Minoan palaces. Um, the Minoan style site at the um, site of Akrotiri on um, ancient Thera, modern day Santorini. I also looked at one of the houses on the island of Kea, which was part of the, both Kea and Thera are known as part of the Cycladic island chain. Um, it's a circular chain of, uh, composed of an underground uh, mountain range, and they're called cycladic because of the word kiklos, meaning circle in Greek. Um, so it's a sort of round or circular formation of islands, and it's one of several different formations of Greek islands. You have also uh, like the Dodecanese, which is closer to the coast of Turkey, but I did not so much look at look at those. Okay, um, on on a map, I think. Many people can visualize Sant Santorini. It's very, very popular um, in like modern day uh, Crete, right? Um, so yeah, so you have Santorini somewhat south southeast of Athens. You have uh, the big island of Crete, 
like for the most part straight south of uh, of the mainland of Greece. Where would Kea uh, be on a map? Well, Kea and uh, Thera and Milos are often referred to as what's known as the western string of the Cycladic Islands. In okay. that, if you were going to um, sail from, let's say, from Crete to um, the port at Lavrion in southern Attica, you would pass close to those three islands and um, again they're often referred to as the western string because you kind of go from island to island to island um, and so uh, Kea would be the closest one of the Cycladic islands to the Greek mainland. In the Bronze Age is it believed that the civilizations on these islands were under the same governance or different, a different governance structure? That's a point of contention. All of these islands show Minoan influence, but we don't know how the Minoans governed themselves, so it would be hard to say how these islands were governed. But as I said, they show a lot of Minoan cultural influence, but they had their own unique pottery style. Mm. Um, I've recently written an article about one of the houses at uh, Anthera or Santorini, arguing that it was a important uh, belonged to an important wealthy trader in textiles. Hmm. Is it confidently believed that uh, there is trade amongst these islands over the sea? Yeah, absolutely. In fact. Um, our view of islands is really changing from the way people maybe looked at them 20 years ago. For example, you would think of islands that were unvisited or untouched like the Galapagos Islands as sort of a laboratory that would be pristine and you could go see things there that were sort of unaffected by contacts with other places. Mm -hmm. But in fact, um, the Mediterranean was a highly networked area. And if you lived on an island or near a coastline, um, you probably had much more interaction than people living in the hinterland because the sea acts like a network, um, bringing all these places together. Uh, much like today, the internet is a network the railroad system of the 19th century was a network and uh, bringing places that might be far away close together. And um, the Minoans on Crete acquired what's known as the deep hold ship with a mast around 1900 and that uh, really brings them closer uh, it accelerates um, maritime interaction and brings really Crete into the Near Eastern sphere of influence um, in the mm -hmm. earlier era um, the people of the region were using what they call a longboat which is like a boat carved out of a log with people rowing it and um, uh, acquiring the ship with mast, uh, the sort of galley style of ship, really um, it intensified the connections between all of these regions. Interesting. Um, and a point of <laughs> clarification, when you mentioned Kea, is that an island or is that a group of islands? It's a tiny island that's part of the cycladic group of islands. Okay, okay, understood. Um, in this period of time when we're zeroing in on... Um, uh, what would be modern-day uh, Crete, so Minoan, uh, Thera and Kea, 
uh, Thera being modern day Santorini. What would what would have been the most developed uh, civilization in the Bronze Age out of those islands? Without a doubt, Crete. But um, Kea, or at least the not Kea, but the Thera, the site of Acrotaria was also very highly developed. They actually modified their architecture to make it more Minoan in style. Mm. And we have quite a few, every single house was decorated with wall paintings or frescoes. In fact, we have much more preserved from there than we do from Greece because when um, the island of Thera erupted, it was also an active volcano around 1614 BCE. It preserved the houses there to the second and sometimes the third story. And so we have really great preservation of all the wall paintings. So it also, I would say it shows an, uh, an amount of sophistication equal to Crete, but without as many um, large sites and without uh, a sort of palatial style building. Well, you know, they had palatial style buildings, but not palaces. What distinguishes the palaces on Crete is their labyrinthine layout organized around a large central court mm -hmm. um, using two to one proportions and often oriented on a sacred mountain. Yeah, like a, uh, would you call that a citadel at that point, if it's on a mountain? Mm, no, they were oriented on a mountain. You can see in my picture that uh, I'm sitting in the central court at Festos in Southern Crete and behind me is Mount Ida and there would be sanctuaries on these mountains. And you can see right here, there's a little black dot on Mount Ida that you could pick out in the snow. And that's a cave, uh, which was a sacred cave that the Minoans worshiped in. And this is known as the Kamari's cave, but most of the Minoan palaces were oriented on a sacred mountain and had uh, either a peak sanctuary or cave sanctuary site. But the palaces themselves were in lowlands um, when you, a citadel would be a, uh, a sort of higher area that uh, a building would be situated on. And you see this more in the later Mycenaean civilization, particularly at Mycenae and Tiryns. Okay. And we're only recording audio, so everyone listening will have to visualize what uh, oh, Professor cool. Hitchcock just said. Oh, it's totally fine. So she, so she basically has a mountain range in the background. Um, so, so she was... Uh, uh, so visualize uh, 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 palatial buildings, if you will, uh, more uh, along the, ma the mountain range um, versus on a top of a hill. I'm, I'm kind of uh, kind of recreating what you said, uh, Louise. OK, uh, no OK. Um, OK, so what delineates the architecture in on these islands in this period versus perhaps uh, the Mycenaean, um, the mainland in Greece? I'd say the two biggest things is that the Minoan palaces had wings of uh, fairly complicated layouts of rooms organized around a large central court. Um, in the th uh, three biggest palaces, the central court was about, uh, I believe it was about 50 by 100 meters. And what and where the Mycenaean palaces are different, instead of being organized around a central court or being court centered, they would be organized around a large rectangular hall mm. um, that was covered. 
and the central point of each of these halls would be a monumental hearth that would have been painted with a fresco design and then opposite the hearth you would have had uh, a, a place for a throne to be situated for the Mycenaean king. The so I'd say this halls being hall-centered versus being court-centered are the two biggest or the are the biggest distinction. Yeah, I can visualize that. Um, is the is the central court would that be open, like the 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 ceiling, like no ceiling? No ceiling. Okay. Yeah, too too large. It's hard to span more than about uh, a five to ten meter space. Where would the throne? area be for the mycenaean palace no the uh ones on the I islands like in the, okay. the yeah the architecture with the uh the buildings with the central court we only know Knossos to have a throne and that's a modern designation we really don't know how the minoans organized their social structure i've actually recently um given a paper that i intend to publish at some point where I discussed the Minoans as having had one of the earliest deep states. And by a deep state, I don't mean like some secret uh, cabal, but more like um, an entrenched bureaucracy of sort of faceless people who were elites and who um, ran the society out of these palaces. Um, through the manipulation of ritual and through bureaucratic organization. Okay. Were the... So you mentioned um, uh, some of the, especially palatial buildings, were uh, more oriented along hills or mountains. Um, but then you also have, these are islands, so you have water that uh, surrounds them. They're, uh, they're surrounded by water. Um, did you find that the civilizations that you examined, uh, the architecture, uh, was more oriented towards being on a hill and having the protection from that comes with that, or or a mountain, of course, or were they more oriented the actual civilizations, not necessarily the palatial buildings, um, towards the uh, being a port along the along the sea? I think you would have had houses near the port, but the palaces were set back uh, a ways from the port. The only one that's really close to its port is the palace site at Catazacro on the east coast. And I went back and looked at this a few years back, and uh, it seems to me that a lot of these buildings were situated so as to um, have a strategic location. They weren't on highlands in that they weren't... Um, fortified like the Mycenaean buildings were. It's been suggested that the um, the labyrinthine layout of the architecture formed like an internal defensive mechanism. For example, you could have, uh, by shutting or opening a few doors, you might be able to close off entire wings of the palace, making them hmm. easily defensible from within. That's interesting. Um, well, this is where the word labyrinth comes from. Mm. Um, it comes from the sort of uh, complicated layout of the Minoan buildings, which is um, much more complex than the Mycenaean buildings. The Mycenaean buildings were laid out in a much more simplified fashion. Interesting. So how, how big are like the typical 
palatial buildings. How 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 large were they? Well, as I mentioned, the central courts were about um, uh, 50 by 100 meters of the biggest ones. There are some that are smaller. Uh, Catasacro on the east, its court is about uh, one quarter the size of the bigger ones. I worked at a very small palace in East Crete where the um, central court was only about five by 10 meters. And um, with the bigger ones, though, again, you would have had like another 25 meter uh, width uh, for each of the wings um, surrounding the court. So they were quite they were quite enormous buildings. And a lot of people talk about the central court as places where rituals took place, even though they can't really uh, determine what those rituals were. But I also like to think of them as being like an elevator because these wings were not necessarily interconnected. And, you know, if you go to your office building to work every day, you might take an elevator and just go to your floor, work on that floor and never see the rest of the building or never see it with uh, on too many occasions. And the central court seemed to focus in this way also in that it facilitated communication between the different wings of the palace. So you might go in into the central court and then go to the area of that building that you would um, spend your day working in. Is there any- In other activities. Yeah, and in a big palatial building like the the one that was the court's 50 by 100 meters, I I believe you you said, is there any evidence for um, the types of other rooms and the and therefore implied uh, activities that are being done? Like, was there a lot of residential, uh, be- like bedrooms and uh, other types of rooms that may have certain utilities, like uh, cooking or maybe uh, creating products like textiles and things like that? Is there any evidence around that? We don't have a lot of internal spaces that show evidence of cooking, maybe the most at Catasacro. Maybe they were cooking outside or bringing the food in from somewhere. Um, these cooking, at least the eating areas seem to be associated with pillared halls that were located in the north of the building. There tends to be um, a regularity in terms of where rooms are located. My, my Actually, my PhD supervisor did his own PhD on this on the function, on the layout and organization of the Minoan palaces. The West Wings were typically a storage area um, and you had this sort of blank imposing wall that faced another court, what we call the West Court. And the West Court was a publicly accessible court where you might have public rituals and also um, you would see this storage area that would house behind it a lot of the stored goods of the building often typically on the um, south part of the building you would have a major entryway Um, on the north part of the building and also sometimes on the east part of the building you might have large halls that functioned as gathering spaces it's been suggested that these large halls were sleeping areas Mm -hmm. Um, i believe they were more multifunctional we haven't found a lot in them but the one at Knossos, you reached it by uh, a multi-story grand staircase that was decorated, which would indicate that it would be sort of a receiving hall for, I, I believe it was a reception hall for visiting traders. I believe it was where the scribes met. I believe you could have also held rituals there and you could have also slept there. Um, 
that it was multifunctional. And I take this, my background is a little bit different than other people who study the Minoans. Most people who go into studying the Minoans come out of a background of classics. My own background comes out of studying the history of ancient Mesopotamia. And I used to work in Syria quite a bit. I lived in Aleppo for a year and I saw how Syrian families lived. And typically the living room where you would entertain visitors was also the sleeping room. And you'd have cushions just piled up high against the wall. And then at night they would lay them out and it would become a sleeping area. So the sleeping area and the gathering area and the reception area were all the same area. And there's no reason to think that something similar didn't take place in the uh, Minoan buildings. Okay. Um, how large in terms of population is it believed that these uh, civilizations were? Mm, I don't like dealing with population estimates. Uh, I tried once for an mm -hmm. article I wrote about um, Akrotiri, that's the site on Thera, mm -hmm. and you had populations ranging from 3,000 to 15,000. Mm -hmm. And it depends on what kind of formula you use to try to make the population estimates. Some people say that the area around Knossos could have had as many as a as 100,000. But you're really, you're dealing with lots of demographic type formulas and it will always come out with very different numbers. I would say they were big enough to, um, engage in producing a food surplus, um, to engage in craft activities, mm. to engage in a bureaucracy, and to engage in sheep herding. And you had a number of different palatial centers around the island. So maybe think of uh, like five or seven, eight major cities with maybe uh, 10 to 100,000 people in each, but it's really difficult to pinpoint. I think it's really difficult to pinpoint a number and I also think people bring, again, a lot of their modern um, ideas about how family structures are situated um, in that. Uh, I've seen population estimates for smaller villages made on the basis of a nuclear family. And again, my own experience in Syria indicates people had extended families. And if you had a multi-story structure, you might have they're in a nuclear family living on each level, but they'd all be related. And um, you might not have just like a pair, uh, uh, sort of two parents and three or four children. You might have eight or nine children. Um, I knew this one family in Aleppo where the woman had been pregnant 22 times and eight children survived. And they wouldn't each have their own room like we have in Western society, but they'd all sleep uh, next to each other in the living room. Hmm. Is there enough vestige, vestiges to know how many other buildings that are non-palatial might have been around each palatial building? And I know it's going to vary per, per island, um, but can you give uh, examples of uh, what's, what's known? Again, it varies too because so much of archaeology in the past has been focused on excavating the uh, monumental palaces because they're, the architecture is more interesting. Hmm. And this also kind of reflects, I suppose, a sort of patriarchal approach, although 
you know, I'm female. I'm more interested in the monumental architecture than I am in the uh, settlement architecture. Um, and they've they've excavated a, a few houses around Knossos, and I'd say a good dozen around the palace at Malia. Not so much at Festos, but they've excavated a small town near Festos with a few dozen buildings. Mm. Uh, so some places we have entire towns, and the houses seem to be tightly clustered together uh, when they do. And uh, so, but I don't think anyone's ever tried to do sort of a estimate of the number of families, or if they have, I haven't read it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what materials were used to build these structures? Um, mostly stone and mud brick. And um, the, the Minoans had a very nice masonry technique. It's what we call ashlar, which means the uh, front of the stone was finished. The back of the stones, not so much, not so much, but there would be two facings of these ashlar blocks. And then in between the backs of them, which were unworked, they would put uh, mud and smaller stones. And you would create um, sort of stone foundation layers you might even have as many you might in fact have an entire um first story um constructed of stone and then Mm. the second story of mud brick however you might also just have a foundation uh couple foundation layers of stone and then continue upwards with mud brick we actually have some very good information on this and that we have um a mosaic from Knossos. it's it's incomplete of course because everything is um disturbed, but it's made of faience plaques, and it's called the town mosaic. And it shows um, depictions in faience of houses. And some of them are seem to be made with facades using all stones. Others seem to be made, built using um, logs going crisscross, kind of like a log cabin. And most of them tend to be um, two stories with um, a transom on the roof indicating that they went up to the roof space and probably during the warmer summer months a lot of activity took place on the rooftops and possibly people even slept there the stone and mud brick that that method that you described would that have started in the early middle or late bronze age um, it really, it started, uh, it, it was started being developed in the early Bronze Age, but it started um, in the middle Bronze Age around 2000 to 1700 with the first palaces. It would have been more um, prolific. And then in around 1700, there seemed to be an earthquake that damaged Crete. And um, some of the palaces were rebuilt, some were um sort of built over and completely rebuilt and new ones were built. And a lot of palatial style villas uh, were built throughout the island. I think they've excavated around 29 from this era. This doesn't mean there weren't more, this is what's been excavated. And there's something I'd like to add where I mentioned the mm-hmm. um, sort of stone and a mud brick. They would also have timber and rubble in the upper levels of the construction. And it's thought that this gave the um, walls more elasticity in the event of an earthquake. Um, 
and Crete would have been subject to many earthquakes, not just from the eruption of the Theron volcano, but um, the southern part of the island of Crete sits on what's known as a subduction zone, which is a massive underwater crack. And so it would have been highly subject to earthquakes and um, the timber and rubble upper layer construction would have given the buildings more flexibility. I'm actually from California where we built in the same way where um, I've actually lived myself through two major earthquakes and uh, most of the houses are built uh, very fl flimsy walls of uh, timber and plaster to give them that flexibility and it's kind of a uh, it's kind of funny here in Melbourne we live in a, a brick church from the 19th century and all the buildings in my neighborhood are brick and to me that's like a huge novelty because you don't see brick buildings in California you might see brick chimneys and every time there's an earthquake everywhere there's a chimney there's a collapsed pile of bricks hmm how did um so if there's the kind of the beginning of this kind of architectural process of developing the buildings, uh, this uh, construction process in 2000 to 1700, I believe you said, how would you describe how that evolved by the late Bronze Age? Okay, it, it evolves in a very interesting way because um, what you see mainly um, to support the roofs in the, um, where we have evidence, again, because there was so much damage, the first palaces were not well preserved, but where we have evidence, what you tend to see are a lot of what we call hypostyle halls. That is where a large hall would be supported by a series of square pillars um, to span the space. And it's suggested that this, um, technique may have been borrowed from Egypt. We do know that uh, Minoan builders had visited Egypt. We also know that Minoan fresco painters did as well. And they may have been influenced by Egyptian architecture in this sense. And by the period of the second palaces, which goes from 1700 to 1450, um, there's a major change in how uh, large spaces are constructed. They build what they call um, a pier and door partition hall. And to me, this is like one of the most, this is what made me interested in Minoan architecture. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing like it anywhere else at that in the Mediterranean or Near East at this time. And what a pier and door partition hall is, instead of, um, let's say you have a big rectangular room, like your, the room you're sitting in now, and you have walls surrounding it. Um, and then door, a doorway. Um, a pier and door partition wall would instead be a series of rectangular piers um, to support the ceiling. And between each pier, there would be a set of double doors. And um, so what you could do with this set of double doors, you'd be, have maybe a wall made up of three sets of them or four, and you could close them off and that would turn that space into a wall. Or if you opened all of the doors, then you'd open that space up so that you would have two interconnected rooms uh, creating a much larger space. And the best analogy, modern analogy to sort of understand this is if you go into a hotel banquet room 
and they have a partition that they pull off mm -hmm. where they close it to make series of smaller rooms or they pull it back uh, mm -hmm. to make a much larger space. And so you might have um, two of these rooms next to each other, um, sometimes even three, and then um, you'd have a third space, which would be a light well. And the light well would be um, a space, a small space open to the sky um, and supported by a pair of columns. And so if you were deep within the fabric of the building, you would have this hall with the doorways that you could open. And sometimes all three rooms would, I mean, all three walls rather would be surrounded by these sets of double doors and they would open onto a, another smaller room. And then that smaller room would open onto a light well, which would be like a tiny inner courtyard that would help to light the building. It was really, really sophisticated mm -hmm. and unique. In your research, did you ever come across anything that you would define as a labyrinth or a maze? Um, well, what you could do with some of these hallways um, to really make them more complicated is to um, maybe open or close every other door and that would give that would contribute to a more maze like quality for the building and um, if you were going to have let's say some sort of coming of age ritual or something you could disorient the initiate maybe even give them some opium um, and sort of take them in and out these different doorways and that would contribute to creating a sort of uh, a spatial distortion, let's say. And that's what gives the building its sort of labyrinthine uh, qualities. Also, you might have in the way you have a limited architectural vocabulary. That is, you have a limited um, series of different types of spaces, such as a small room with a pillar, this hallway, hall system I'm talking about corridors, storage rooms, um, slightly larger gathering areas, but they could be arranged in diverse ways. So if you know the layout of one Minoan building, it wouldn't necessarily allow you to easily navigate another one. And there's an example I like to do when I've taken students around Crete, where um, one of the um, villas is pretty well preserved, so up to head height. <clears throat> and um, take their plan away from them and tell them to find the Minoan Hall. And it might require going down a hallway, making a turn, and you have seven different doors. And mm -hmm. you have no clue if you know if you don't know the building, which at which doorway actually leads to the hall. Interesting. So when you look at um, certain built buildings, is there anything that is limiting for a scholar to be able to know what certain materials existed because the materials themselves just wouldn't be around uh, in present day? Um, we don't have a lot of roofing material, but there's a, like a, you find sometimes lumps if there was a fire of what looks like sort of mud with reed impressions that would have fallen that would have served as the roofing material. We also don't have as good, we don't have the same quality of evidence in terms of mud brick remains 
that you do in Egypt where it's very dry and okay. things like that are preserved. Also, um, we assume that we, we, have ve- we haven't deciphered the Minoan writing system because they wrote on clay tablets and not many of those were preserved. But we also know that they probably wrote on scrolls or on parchment because we have clay ceilings. That's something that has an impression on it that was used to seal. It could be used to seal a jar or a document or a doorway. And we have these ceilings and um, they might be curved and have a string impression, which would indicate there was a tied up parchment placed inside them. And so we don't have that, but we kind of know it existed. We don't have much text, many, much, we have almost nothing in the way of textiles, but we have mm-hmm. loom weights and we have uh, wall paintings depicting people in their clothing. And uh, again, seal impressions or seals themselves that give us an idea of um, what the textiles were like. Um, and we know from this also that the textiles were exported to Egypt because we see the same pattern on Minoan textiles um, portrayed as sort of the um, tent ceiling of uh, a painted tomb. It's not the actual textile, but it, it's the textile pattern. We also have um, Egyptian tomb paintings showing Minoans bringing uh, bolts of cloth. Um, we also don't, for the Minoan period, have a lot of tombs. We have them, or for the middle and late, or for the late Bronze Age, many tombs. We have a lot of tombs from the early Minoan period, and we have a lot of tombs from the end of the Minoan period, which are more Mycenaean in style, because the Mycenaeans took over. Um, but we don't have a lot of tombs found from the late Minoan era. And um, so that's that's kind of probably have to assume they did something with their dead. It's been speculated that you know, we had, they practiced excarnation where you lay the body out and let uh, vultures and things deflesh it. There's also been speculation that they buried, they were buried at sea because they were maritime culture. However, nobody wants to really go come out with that formally because mm-hmm. if we find one big cemetery, then that would ruin that whole idea. But so it's just, it's just speculation. We also don't have a lot of metals. I mean, we have some metals, but typically um, metal was very hard to come by. Uh, Crete was poor. It was rich in wood and in textiles. It was, and in um, uh, grain production and in stone, but it was not rich in metals. Metals and ivory had to come from elsewhere. Um, Copper, probably from Cyprus, but copper could have also come from uh, Turkey or um, Israel, and they tin probably came from, could have come from um, Dilmun, which is uh, the island of Bahrain, or it could have come from uh, possibly as far away as Cornwall, but it would have been through like Sardinia um, and through Cyprus. So we don't know, the t- and possibly from Anatolia. We don't know the tin sources so well because um, when the tin sources are mined out, there's no trace remains. We do know where the copper sources uh, were, but these, the thing is, because it was a, took a lot of effort to get metals, they were usually recycled. They would be melted down and reused. It's much easier to recycle something than to 
uh, get it in a raw form. Um, and so when you do tend to have valuable objects, let's say like gold objects or metals or something, it's usually if there is a tomb that is undisturbed or if you have a building that was abandoned very quickly and then destroyed and those items just got left inside of it. Okay. Um, how did, how do you believe religious orientations and beliefs by these people in this period influenced their architectural decisions? Um, I believe quite a lot in that uh, it gave uh, the buildings a lot of complexity that if you weren't somebody sort of say who normally went to the palace either to work or live there or administrate the activities going on it's kind of like a cross between i think of them as like a cross between a large shopping mall and a monastery where you have um sort of a regular population that goes there and others that are outside of it and um so i think they went out of their way to make it complex to um to sort of uh keep outsiders out were there um any religious uh statues or emblems or any any kind that survived that's religious in nature that's a really good question um not really we don't have you don't really have so much monumental sculpture in the mediterranean except uh, maybe in egypt um you do have figurines and they seem to be mostly representing worshipers and the vast majority of them are found in peak and cave sanctuaries um you also seem to have like sort of what we would call feasting ceremonies taking place in and uh around the palaces and in the villas and the purpose of feasting it would be kind of like their version of social networking and facebook you would get together at special times of the year most likely like the planting season the harvest season a large feast would be provided everybody would get drunk and it would be a way of sort of formalizing social bonds uh again it's more mm -hmm. fun than facebook to get together <laughs> and get drunk um and there were also special kinds of vessels there were animal head shaped vessels with two holes and um, some of them were really elaborate in that they were carved from stone. Uh, most of these were in the shape of bull's heads. And it seemed to be that they were made for a one-time occasion and ritually broken. And I say this based on uh, a colleague who studied the breakage patterns and determined that they were all kind of smashed at the nose. And it seems that this was used for a sort of one-time sort of event maybe uh initiating a particular elite into their <clears throat> ceremonial position <clears throat> and it would be a bull because a bull is a very powerful animal and it also seems that uh when these events took place people kept pieces of it like a souvenir or a token of the event and i say this based on the fact that they seem to have been handed down um generationally as heirlooms because you find some of them as far away as uh, on the Mycenaean mainland a couple of centuries later. And you've also found that we also found a couple in um, uh, temples in Cyprus from several centuries later. 
So it would have been a, something particularly meaningful to leave as an offering. And I kind of liken this keeping a souvenir to like um, in modern times, if you go to a restaurant and it's a spe- not, not just like McDonald's, but you, you have a special date or a birthday or something, or it's a special mm-hmm. restaurant, you might keep an embossed napkin or in the days of smoking a, a matchbook a book of matches or an ashtray or something to remind you of the events and maybe even put it in a scrapbook yeah yeah or uh i don't know if they still do this at, at restaurants probably some do but you have uh a little retail spot at the front where you can buy the postcards or the trinkets or or whatever the hard work cafe <laughs> <laughs> i know exactly yeah i know exactly what you're talking about um so we'll work towards uh closing up here in a moment uh and i'm gonna ask you uh momentarily if you had anything else that you feel is very necessary to to add to the dialogue today um, but i want to circle back on your comment about the bull's heads uh, that were found. Do scholars believe that that's tied at all to mythology around a minotaur or something like that? Uh, depends on who you ask. Mm. Um, I think it was connected to, I think maybe um, memory, sort of handed down memories of this because the Minoans are associated closely with the idea of the Minotaur and Theseus, but the Minotaur was a part bull man, was a part bull, part human creature. And I think this really comes from the Near East, from Mesopotamia, where you actually have depictions of bull men rather than just bulls, which you have in Crete. You also have um, representations on painting, Minoan paintings, of people leaping over bulls, perhaps as some kind of initiation ceremony. And uh, you had Minoan artists actually executing these sorts of wall paintings overseas. Um, We have them from... um, an Egyptian palace at the 18th dynasty site of Avarice or modern Tel El Daba in the Nile Delta. Um, mm-hmm. We have Minoan style wall paintings from a Canaanite palace at Tel Kabri in northern Israel, and they've now been found in Katna in Syria and in Alalach in um, what is today southern Turkey, but at one point was northern Syria. Um, also, some indication of Minoan painting styles at the Palace of Mari, the Palace of Zimrilim, dating to the 18th century BCE in Syria, and a few fragments from the Hittite world. So it seems that the Minoan artisanship would have been um, highly prized. Okay. Before we wrap up the conversation, was there anything else that you wanted to add that you think would be pertinent to this conversation today, Louise? Um, I can't think of anything. I could, I, I could really go on for hours. This would be this is like great. A, it's been enjoyable. <laughs> uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll do it again. Would love that. Okay, thanks for coming on the show, Louise. Uh, delighted, delighted. And uh, um, have some poutine for me. Love it. Thanks for coming on the show, Louise. Sure, pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay, everybody. Again, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that... Uh, Dr. Hitchcock is the author of, she co-authored The Aegean Art and Architecture, and she authored Theory for Classics. I'll drop links to both those books in the show notes on the episode subpage at the IthacaBound.com website. Louise and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.